God, we are so thankful uh, for all the things that you are doing in our church and in our midst. And Lord, we thank you that you are at work in more ways than we are even aware of. Lord, you are at work not just in our church, but you are at work throughout the church, the global church, throughout the world. And we give you praise for that. God, we think of even the churches that are gathering right now in Fishers uh, who are declaring the gospel. Lord, we pray for those churches today that you would continue to go before them. Lord, we even specifically lift up churches like Harvest and Hamilton Hills and, and even Grace, other churches, Lord, in this area who are meeting right now. Lord, we pray that Jesus would be exalted in those places. We pray that your word would go forth in power, that it would stir hearts, convict hearts, and encourage hearts. Uh, God, we pray even for us right now, Lord, that we would have open hearts, that we'd have the humility to receive what you have for us in this passage. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, uh, we covered a lot of ground, and we, uh, we addressed a lot of issues in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And so I just want to begin this morning uh, by providing a little bit of a summary, and even for us to maybe take a step back and zoom out at what Paul is doing uh, in chapters 8, 9, and 10. These three chapters really form one section in 1 Corinthians. Paul, I think, is addressing how Christians who have the same spirit of God, who have the same Bible, and yet who have different positions on conscience issues or non-primary doctrinal issues, how can they possibly live among one another and live in unity? Paul is addressing the specific issue here in Corinth about whether or not they can eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols whether they can even attend kind of those temple cultic dinners that meat was being offered and, and worship of idols was taking place. And what I find just astounding and what Paul does in these three chapters is Paul never comes out and just says, all right, Church of Corinth, I want all of you just to be vegetarians. All right, and everybody else just kind of fall into line. Like he never just comes out and just says exactly what they should do related to the meat. And in some ways, in my mind, that would be easier, maybe for church unity, is for all of the believers just to agree on the non-primary doctrinal issues so we can have unity, right? That just makes sense in my mind. And yet, Paul doesn't do that here. And, and the reason why is because within this church, and really within every church, there is more at stake than just unity, there is more that is at play related to non-primary doctrinal issues than just unity. See, for the strong in conscience, and we looked at this last week, the strong in conscience are those who, within their Christian liberties and rights and freedoms, they, they are able to do certain things uh, in which the Bible doesn't forbid, all right? But for the strong in conscience, they are prone to pride, they are prone to arrogance. They are prone to even licentiousness. That's at play for them here, not just unity. Or take the, the weak in conscience, which means not, not Christians who are inferior to other Christians or that they're less of a Christian. It just means that their conscience is more sensitive. Their conscience is more restrictive. But for the weak in conscience, what's at play for them is judgmentalism and even at times legalism. 
So, so there's more at play here. There's more at stake than just unity. And I think Paul uses this conscience issue of meat being sacrificed to idols in order to address the heart in both camps, all right? And I think that's gonna be a challenge for us as we walk through chapter nine and even chapter 10. Well, last week we looked at chapter eight and we looked at the idea of the conscience. And I just provided a, a basic definition that the conscience is your personal sense of what is right and what is wrong. You can view the conscience as kind of the inner moral referee that's helping you evaluate what is right and what is wrong. And then I added layers on top of that. I said that your conscience is not above God's word. If you have to choose between what the Bible has to say and your conscience, choose the Bible every time, right? We also talked about how the, uh, the conscience is personal to you. Uh, the conscience is to be applied to moral issues, what is right and what is wrong, not uh, Doritos or Fritos, right? Some of those preference issues, uh, we also talked about how the conscience can be seared. You can, become, you can have a conscience that's become calloused because of repeated sin, and that's a very dangerous place to be. And then we also looked at how the conscience can, can be better adjusted to God's word. It can be better aligned with God's word. And when that happens, it becomes a very helpful tool toward uh, maturity. But one of the most important points from chapter eight is Paul's emphasis on biblical love and not just knowledge that should govern our actions. That love should be the determining factor, not just knowledge in evaluating how to use our rights and our Christian freedoms. See, for Paul, on issues related to the conscience, he is less concerned about who is right and who is wrong, and he is more concerned about using our Christian rights and liberties in order to love others and build them up. For Paul here, he actually puts the bulk of the responsibility on the strong. And I think just, just kind of having a week to kind of think about that, wrestle with that, let that sit for a moment. I think that is a very challenging word, especially in our culture today. I'm sure you've picked up on this, but our culture loves polarization right now. It, it loves to even almost... Um, demonize people on the other side of the fence. That if you're not in my camp, if you're not part of my tribe, I'm really not gonna give you the benefit of the doubt, right? That's kind of what we're swimming in. And we need to be careful of people who are in this church that doesn't seep into our congregation, especially when it comes to non-primary doctrinal issues. Because for the apostle Paul, the greatest evidence of spiritual maturity is not so much how much do you know or do you have the right kind of knowledge, but it's about how well you love others, especially those with whom you might disagree with. That love for others should govern how we use our Christian freedoms and our rights. Now, Paul has a lot more to say on that topic in chapter 10. We're actually gonna spend at least two, maybe three weeks on chapter 10 after uh, this morning. Uh, I'm actually even gonna take a lot of the questions that were submitted in the forum last week, and I'm gonna answer those questions in chapter 10 because he gets very, very practical 
uh, on this topic. But when you come to chapter nine, maybe you thought this as Pastor Dustin was reading uh, the passage, this almost feels like a personal tangent by the Apostle Paul. You almost wanna put your arm around Paul and say, man, don't get so defensive. Like you're so sensitive right now. Just kind of calm down a little bit. It almost feels like he's taking the focus off the conscience, maybe even off the strong and the weak, and he's kind of putting it on himself. Well, what Paul is doing here Paul, and this is absolutely brilliant, Paul is reframing the discussion on the conscience by using his own personal life and ministry as a case study for us. He's using his own position here, who he is the strong in conscience, and he is going to demonstrate for us how the strong should actually serve the weak in conscience. And it's amazing what he does in this chapter. Paul's really just building off chapter eight, verse 13, where he said, if eating meat causes anyone to stumble, I will not eat meat. And he's gonna build off that and explain why that is the case. So we're gonna walk through this passage. I'm gonna give some application towards the end. But the first thing I want you to know about this passage is the first two verses, Paul's authority is actually questioned. I think in one of the most emotionally jarring pivots in all of 1 Corinthians, Paul now turns and he defends his rights as an apostle and as a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This passage contains 16 rhetorical questions by Paul. It is one after another after another. When you think he's finished, he adds another one and another one. Paul is clearly emotionally charged in this chapter. And on one hand, it's understandable. Paul is the the founder of the church at Corinth. He has invested a lot of time and energy in this church. And now his authority is being questioned. They doubted Paul because he was different than the other apostles. He was different than the other Christian leaders that came through uh, Corinth, like Apollos, like, like Peter. And you can see his authority being questioned in just his rhetorical questions in the first two verses. Notice, he says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. All right, just a reminder, Paul's responding to a letter that he received from them. There's been some correspondence And what we can gather is that the Corinthians had three problems with the Apostle Paul. First, they simply did not like Paul's exhortation for them not to attend those temple cultic dinners where idol worship uh, took place. He's going to be way more explicit with that in chapter 10. But what we can gather, he's already made that clear to them. And the Corinthians just simply did not like that type of counsel. And the Corinthians were doing what some of us tend to do when we don't like counsel that we were receiving, we don't like maybe exhortation that we're given, and we tend to almost question the authority that's behind that, right? That's what the Corinthians are doing here. That's the first problem. But the second problem is that they didn't like that Paul didn't receive compensation or, or food or place to stay while he ministered among them. And for the Corinthians, that was very unapostle-like. And so they're kind of questioning if Paul is truly an apostle. Well, then third, the other issue that they have with him is that Paul 
seemed like he flip-flopped back and forth whether or not to eat meat or not. Because with some people, he would eat meat. Other people, he would abstain. And so for the Corinthians, they're, they're taking a step back and they're kind of putting this all together. And they're saying, man, even this guy, he's confused about what to do. He clearly is not an apostle. Apostles know what to do. He keeps going back and forth. Therefore, this guy isn't an apostle. He doesn't have the right authority. We do not need to submit or obey what he is telling us. And this issue does not go away for Paul in the Corinthians. It actually gets worse and it continues to escalate and escalate. You even see it in 2 Corinthians uh, later on in chapters 11 and 12. So how does Paul respond to this? Like what, what's his move, right? Well, the verses three through 14 Paul begins to defend his rights, exactly what he says in verse three. He's going to lay out for us an argument for why he should be compensated, why he has rights because of his work as a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in verses four through 14, these verses contain a five-tier argument that is airtight, Paul lays it before them of why he has rights, and then he explains what he's going to do with those rights. So let me walk through this five-tier argument fairly quickly, because I don't think it's the main point of the passage, but I want to point these out to you. The first tier argument is found in verses four through seven, where Paul appeals to just ordinary practice, the practice of his day. He uh, mentions verse seven, that the soldier does not serve at their own expense, those who own vineyards don't refrain from eating the grapes or drinking the wine. Shepherds don't have to pay for the milk produced by their flocks. And so for Paul, in the same way, Paul guarded the Corinthian church like a soldier. He tended to it like a vineyard. He cared for it like a shepherd. And so he had the right, every right, to make his living as a gospel preacher. And he just points to ordinary practice. All right, that's the first tier. But the second tier is found in verses eight through 10, where he argues from the scriptures. Verse eight, the law there refers to the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, and he grounds his appeal in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse four, to argue that laborers, even animals, have a right to receive something from their work. And so Paul's saying, therefore, so should I. The next set of arguments found in Verses 11 and 12, Paul just argues from common sense. Look at verse 11. He says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Paul essentially is saying, look, you guys are clearly receiving some type of benefit from my work in ministry. Therefore, I should be compensated for that kind of work. After all, you're doing this with other teachers, why not me as well? All right, and then the fourth tier of argument found in verse 13, Paul just appeals to the religious custom of the day. Paul essentially says, look around at the other religions, look at the other cults, and look at the priests, look at the religious leaders. They are being compensated for their work. So should I. All right, so Paul argues from ordinary practice, from the scriptures, uh, from common sense, from religious custom, but then lastly, he argues from the Lord Jesus himself, verse 14. And I think there he's actually drawing from Matthew 10, 10. 
Or you look at Paul's argument, and it, it is airtight. He's laying before them just a clear set of reasons why he has every right to be compensated as a preacher of the gospel. But notice what Paul does then. Like, we would expect Paul then to start to demand to be compensated, to demand to have these same rights that the other apostles have. And yet, in surprising fashion, he doesn't do that. Verse 12, he says, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Or verse 15, he says, but I have made no use of any of these rights. Notice what's happening here. The apostle Paul is laying aside these rights, which he has argued are truly his. He is entitled to them. He lays them aside. He surrenders them for the good of the Corinthian church. This is an amazing moment. This is Paul demonstrating before the Corinthian church what the strong should do towards those who are weak. Now, just by way of application this morning, I want you to stop for a moment and I want you to think about a situation in your life, maybe it's right now, but a situation in your life where maybe you can relate to the Apostle Paul, or a situation in your life where maybe in your mind you are right about something, or maybe you think that you're right about something. And, and that particular position that you have, maybe it's creating tension with somebody else, maybe you're at odds with somebody else because of a position or a behavior that you are having, and there's a little bit of tension, even though you're right. I want you to think about that for a moment, and I want to ask this question. What will lead you to move from holding on to being right, to having the right position, right? Having maybe a, a Christian freedom, if you will, to holding it like this, with you got this white knuckle, tight grip, tight clench around that right, what will move you from this position to loosening that grip and being willing out of love for somebody else to lay aside being right or laying aside that particular right in your life? What will move you from here, demanding to be right, demanding somebody to do something because you are right, to maybe applying 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5, where love does not insist on its own way, Love, verse seven, bears all things. What will move you to having a type of posture that's humble, that's sacrificial, and that is lovingly serving someone else in your life? It's a really important question because guilt won't do it. Someone just telling you won't truly do it because at the end of the day, it's a heart issue. And what is powerful enough to invade that space of your heart where there's this grip going on and this is a right I have. I, am, I have the right kind of knowledge. What will have the power to loosen that grip in your life? It's an important question and it's a question that Paul actually addresses. The only thing powerful enough is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you notice verse 12 here. I don't know if you caught this, but he says in verse 12, nevertheless, 
We have not made use of this right, but we endure, literally, that phrase means we put up with anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Right? So Paul, he gives up his rights to ensure that there's no obstacle for the gospel to be received and the gospel to be worshiped. He refuses to even being paid for his ministerial service so that there's no, there's no question about his motives, right? There's no possible stumbling block between him and the people he's ministering to so that the gospel can be received and Jesus can be worshiped. He lays that aside. In verses 15 through 18, he says he's compelled to preach the gospel. This is a man who is so gripped by the freeing power of the gospel that he is loosening his grip and he's moving these rights to the side. Look, for Paul, Paul found something better than being right. Paul found something better than his own Christian rights and liberties. Paul found something better than demanding this group over here to bend to me even though I have the better position. Paul found freedom in the gospel of Jesus Christ and it reoriented everything for him in terms of how to use his Christian freedoms and his rights. Look, church, we have to understand this. If we are going to live out the unity that we have in Jesus, uh, if we are going to address non-primary doctrinal issues, issues of the conscience in love and service to others, We have to understand how the gospel works in that space and understand what Jesus modeled for us and through the power of the Holy Spirit empowers us to then walk in his footsteps. I'm going to challenge you today to take a position to not only believe in the gospel of Jesus, to not only give lip service to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but I'm going to challenge you today to make the gospel so central in your life that it's entered that space of Christian rights and liberties and issues of the conscience, and you're applying it even in that space. So think about Jesus for a moment. Think about exactly what he demonstrated for us in this topic. Jesus Christ being the son of God had every right imaginable. Right, he's up in heaven. He has this position of the strong compared to us who are sinners in the weak, right? And and yet Jesus leaves that position in heaven. He comes to earth, puts on flesh. He takes the form of a servant and he enters the brokenness of our world. Unbelievable, unbelievable humility that Jesus put on display for us to model. And yet, that's not the only thing Jesus did. Jesus Christ lived a sinless, perfect life. And then he got up on a cross. He got up on what was a torture tool for criminals, for the guilty, for the immoral. And he took that position And yet he was right. And yet he was the son of God. He left that to the side and he got up on the cross in order to pay our penalty, us who were in the wrong, us who are weak, us who are sinners. And he paid for our freedom. 
He paid our penalty. He paid our debt so that we could be saved. This is what Jesus did for us. The strong demonstrating what it looks like to lay that aside for the good of the weak. And look, Jesus didn't just do that to save us from our sins, but Jesus did that so that you and I could experience true biblical freedom. See, freedom, according to the world, says you do whatever you want to do. That's what the world says. That's true freedom. That's autonomy. That's independence. You do whatever you feel like doing, right? Be authentic to yourself. That's freedom today in the world. Biblical freedom, freedom found in the gospel, is not doing whatever you want to do and being fine with it because all that you need, all that you want is found in Jesus. That is biblical freedom. Freedom is getting to this place where you are so satisfied in Jesus. Jesus provides all that you need, all that you want, so that when you look to something in this world, you look to sin, you look to to money, possessions, whatever it is, and you say, I don't need that because I have Jesus. I don't need that sin, I have Jesus. I don't need that right, I have Jesus. I don't need them to bend to me. I have Jesus. That is true biblical freedom. And that is what the Apostle Paul is actually putting on display for us in this chapter. See, maybe to to press this in a little bit more, I want you to think about, man, just what we would be like, where we would be if it wasn't for Jesus. Have you pondered that lately? Maybe think about it this way. Where would we be if Jesus held on to his rights the same way that some of us hold on to our rights today? Where would we be if Jesus was up there in heaven 2,000 years ago and said, you know what? I've got the strong position. Those sinners down there, they're, they're, they're the ones who are in the wrong. I'm gonna hold on to my right like this and I'm gonna stay in heaven and not give this position up to serve the weak where would we be? We'd be forever separated from God for all of eternity with no, no hope. And yet Jesus didn't do that. Jesus motivated by love for you. Us who are sinners, enemies of God, gave up, surrendered, and died in order for us to be saved. And look, I'm challenging you with this because when that gets into your heart, not just up here, not just lip service, when that gets into the deep places of your heart, that space of Christian liberty in the conscience, then that's how we can then work towards unity and love towards one another. We can walk in his footsteps. Maybe to put it this way, the way that you treat those who are weak in conscience, the way that you handle your Christian rights and freedoms reveals the centrality of the gospel in your life. That is a direct fruit. That is an objective way that you can see how central the gospel in Jesus is. So that's what Paul is, I think, demonstrating for us here in this passage. But he gets a little bit more specific here. And in verses 19 through 27, becomes really helpful, I think. Because here, I think he provides three aspects to a very compelling strategy of love towards 
the weak, right? He doesn't just kind of model this, but he kind of unpacks this, kind of what was going through his mind and his heart as he's using his liberty for others. So three aspects here. And I think that word for in verse 19 is connecting what he said in verses one through 18. And that word for is basically telling us he's about to explain how he arrived in that position. All right, so three aspects here for this strategy, just to help us to apply this. Number one, use your freedoms to lovingly serve others, not yourself, others, so the gospel can advance. I mentioned Martin Luther last week. I'll mention him again. But in 1520, the great reformer wrote a book called The Freedom of the Christian. I commend it to you. It's a great, great book. But he begins the book with a paradox that kind of sucks you in. And and he says this uh, in the opening of his book. He says, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. But a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. And, and he explains what he means by that. But he says, look, there is a paradox here. It almost feels like these are contradictory statements, but he's really just quoting from the Apostle Paul in verse 19. Paul says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. This is something similar in Romans 13, verse eight, where he says, owe no one anything except to love one another. And love by its very nature is ready to serve and is ready to be subjected to the one with whom you are loving. All right, so here's Paul's first step. Here's a big piece of his strategy is to think about lovingly serving others, not himself, with his own freedoms and his own liberties. Or as Galatians 5, 13 says, he says, you were called to freedom, brethren, Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. See the link there between freedom, love, and service. See, getting to this place where you are thinking through decisions that you make from can I do A, B, and C to should I do A, B, and C? Or what's the impact on the brothers and sisters around me if I do A, B, and C? See, we can't just stop here of can I, and if I can, I will, because really this freedom's about me. But getting to this place where the gospel is so central, where you are asking the question, what's the impact on those around me? Is it for love? Is it to build them up? If not, I'm going to surrender this and love them by serving them in that way. That's love. That's what Paul puts on display for us. And we can understand why that is. We see his motives In verse 19, verse 22, and verse 23, he is motivated by the gospel. Three different verses, he says in three different ways, he wants to save others. He wants to win people to Jesus. He wants others to experience the blessing of the gospel. This is a man who's compelled by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants other people to experience how good Jesus is and even uses his rights and freedoms so that others can, put, can see Jesus on display. See, the goal of Paul's life was not freedom and using his, his rights however he wanted to. The goal in Paul's life was for others to know Jesus. 
and that captivated him, that captured him to even using this to get to that end. That's a huge part of his strategy. But here's another aspect. Number two is that you have to discern the right balance between bending without compromising, right? This is hard. This is really hard work. You have to use discernment and wisdom. And Paul kind of shows us how to do this. Verses 20 through 22, Paul mentions these four categories of people, four different groups of people. You got the Jews, you have those under the law, those outside the law, and then the weak, all right? And the first three groups have to do with Jew and Gentile relationship, all right? He basically says, for the Jews, I'm going to be kosher. For the non-Jews, I'm going to be not, not so much uh, kosher, all right? He just kind of summarizes that way. But he uses those first three examples or those categories really to get to the fourth, He's really trying to focus on the weak. And we, we know that because there's no counterbalance that he provides to the weak as opposed to the other three groups. He doesn't say, I became weak to the weak or I became strong to the strong. He doesn't say that. He just says, I become weak. That's his focus here. And for Paul, he was willing to subject himself to just about anything short of sinning if it meant others would be exposed to the gospel. Now, here's this summary statement, verse 22. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Now, to be clear, Paul is not encouraging us to take the message of the gospel and modify it, to change it, or to compromise it, depending on who we are with. What Paul is calling us to is for us to bend, to modify, and to change how we're using our rights and our freedoms and our behavior whenever necessary and whenever appropriate so the gospel can be advanced. That's what he's calling us to. Even one commentary put this. He said that Paul could not modify the gospel itself according to the particular characteristics of his hearers. Those off limits for Paul. The whole of his concern, though, is to make clear that the changeless gospel empowers him to be free to change his stance, right? It's that space where he can, he can be more flexible for the gospel to go forth. All right, let me give you um, maybe an example from my own life. I hope this is helpful. I hope it doesn't offend anybody. Uh, when you, the more specific you get in these examples, the, uh, the risk that you play is that you, you might offend somebody. So I apologize if I do, uh, you can send me an email after this. But um, last fall, I was invited by a friend to go play pickleball. And uh, love pickleball, by the way, I've mentioned that before. I've gotten into pickleball quite uh, a bit. And I show up there and there are about 25 guys there. I don't know any of them. And they reserved these courts and there is alcohol everywhere. And I show up there and I'm like, hmm. And I start asking myself these questions. Remember the chart last week? What does the Bible say? Does the Bible give freedom here? What does my conscience say? I'm going through all those questions in my mind. And for me, like my conscience allowed me to be there in that environment. You might disagree, but that's where I was. And for me, like I could have drank alcohol. Like that, that's, the Bible is against drunkenness, but to drink in moderation, that is a freedom. But for me, I didn't drink that night, um, partly because I don't think you should mix alcohol and physical exercise, but I'm there and, and I'm playing pickleball and they find out that I'm a pastor. 
And, and that, that tends to, to create an interesting dynamic where half the people avoid me and then the other half like kind of flock to me and they're trying to you know, throw some zingers at me about the church or faith or what, what have you. So I find myself barely playing pickleball that night and, and I, I'm having these conversations about, about the gospel. One guy in particular, 20 minutes, he asked me, what, what got you into ministry? And, and I, I was able to share my rescue story of how Jesus saved me and just talk about grace and how that's available for him. And just this beautiful conversation that for me, like my preference is not to go and play pickleball with a bunch of guys who may or may not have been sober. That's not my preference. But for me, operating around I'm not going to compromise my character, but I'm not gonna compromise the message of the gospel. I talked about sin with this guy. I talked about where he's going to go if he doesn't accept Jesus. I mean, I'm not, I'm not compromising any of that. And in that moment, to the pickleball players, I became a pickleball player for the sake of the gospel going forth with a group of people. And for, for me, like using discernment, using wisdom, thinking through these conscience issues was exhausting. I mean, I'm walking up there and I've got like 30 seconds, like, do I get back in my car? Do I, you know, and I'm going through all of these scenarios. And I, I thought to myself, church, this is not easy. Like, like this is, it's, it's, this is a reason why people kind of call it the gray area. Is it black? Is it white? No, it's a little bit. So, like, I'm just encouraging us this morning for the need to have grace with one another, the need to invite others to speak into these issues, and really the danger of having an echo chamber in your life uh, where other people are just kind of reaffirming your own position and not being challenged and not growing in this way. But it's hard work. And yet Paul would encourage us not to compromise, but to bend for the gospel to go forth. Well, then finally, the last aspect of this strategy I think is really helpful in light of that is to live self-controlled, be fully devoted to the gospel. I think Paul turns the corner and in verses 24 through 27 emphasizes the need for self-control because you can take this principle of becoming all things to all people and quickly justify sinful activity, right? I'm sure you have all kinds of examples of that happening Paul won't let us do that. In fact, Paul uses the metaphor in verse 24 of running a race, uses the metaphor of boxing in verse 26, these athletic pictures for us to show the necessity of being self-controlled, of being disciplined and being focused to living as faithfully as possible. Now, I think this means being wise in what you do and what you don't do, making sure you're avoiding sin at all costs, and making sure that you are living every day, every activity with the motivation of how can the gospel go forth? How can Jesus be seen as glorious in the way that I'm living and the conversations that I am having? And there is, if I had more time, I'd unpack this point, but there's a beautiful and a profound link between self-control and biblical freedom. I'll just lay that there for you to work out for the rest of the week, but I have to move on here. Look at the prize that Paul talks about in verses 24 through 25, this wreath or this reward that you'll experience in eternity if you run the race well, if you avoid being disqualified due to sin and a lack for others. 
So yes, there is a prize. Yes, there is a reward. But church, in this passage, there is a warning before us in verse 27 that we need to heed. Paul says that it is actually possible to become disqualified, meaning at the very least that you're no longer useful in the Christian life, but it could also mean that you will not receive the prize that is in heaven. And that happens because of being dragged by sin and being unable to love others well. Because you have to ask the question contextually, what sin is he talking about? What will lead you to become disqualified because of sin? What is it? Well, the last mention of sin, chapter eight, verse 12, he says, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So look, here's the warning that's before us. You could be right. You could have the right kind of knowledge. You could have the freedom in Christ to do this or that. But a failure to love your brother or sister that's weak in conscience, a failure to correctly use your Christian freedom and your Christian liberty could lead to not only your brother's conscience becoming destroyed, but it could actually lead to you becoming spiritually disqualified. Why? Because abusing your Christian freedoms and rights reveals that Jesus isn't on the throne of your heart, you are. The gospel is not compelling your behavior, your rights are. The love of Christ is not compelling you, your love of freedom and being right is motivating you. And that is a warning that Paul kind of leaves us with before moving into chapter 10 that I wanna leave us with this morning. And I wanna close by just providing about 30 seconds here, maybe 60 seconds, just a, a minute, maybe two here, where we are just silent before the Lord, where we can just reflect on these matters. I'll say it again, these are not easy matters. These are not easy issues to parse out and, and to live by really the law of love here. And I just wanna provide just a moment and some space for maybe you in particular, just to cry out before the Lord, to ask for discernment, ask for wisdom, ask for the gospel to loosen your grip on rights. Something the Lord's been pounding me with all week. He's been challenging me, Chris, are you holding your rights like this? And so just to allow us to reflect and to cry out to the Lord before we sing this last song. So I'll give you a minute to do that and then we'll sing together. God, in humility, we declare as a congregation that we need you. God, we feel our dependency ever before you. 
I think about the words of Jesus in John chapter 15 where he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. God, I pray that you would fill us with that type of humility and dependence upon your spirit and your word. God, as we try to take biblical principles, as we try to live faithfully in in 2021 with, with so many scenarios, so many situations, so many decisions to make, God, would you help us? Would you give us humble, soft hearts? Help us, God, loosen our grip so that we might love and build others up well. We pray so that you would be magnified, you would be glorified, and that the gospel would go forth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.